everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for our No Stupid Questions podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences, or CNIS, at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Mullen, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. Today's conversation is going to shift us back into the world of sports and news. But what our next researcher talks about is something that is so relevant to the world of news um, that we're living in right now. And that's the credibility of sources that we rely on for news and information. Along these lines, we talk about the role of gender in the way live sports are covered. Does it make a difference if we have a female sideline reporter versus a male sideline reporter? And that's interesting, right? Because we don't always, as viewers, make decisions about what we watch based on who the commentators are. But, you know, we certainly do, as viewers, make decisions um, or have opinions about who those commentators and reporters are. And we are not afraid to voice those opinions. But if, I mean, it gets a little bit deeper. Like, do we even think about what these reporters um, and com- commentators are saying and how that might influence our perceptions of the players, the team, or even the sport? Is that a stupid question? That is not a stupid question. And we're going to get answers to these questions along with so much more as we talk with Dr. Sean Sadry, an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media. Sean comes to us as a former professional in sports media, but has spent much of his research time devoted to studying news and sports content. We hear so much about fake news today, and it's one of the many things Sean studies. Um, and it helps us kind of better understand how we find credibility in the sources bringing us the news. We want to extend a very warm welcome to Sean. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to your podcast. It's, it's an honor to be here. So first, Sean, um, can you give us an elevator pitch on your research? Absolutely. So um, typically my research is focused on sports media and um, news credibility, media credibility in the sense of factors that can impact um, our perceptions of credibility, especially, which is especially important, important in um in this era of fake news, which is potentially damaging to society. Um, it can, it can disinform people, misinform people in, in ways that, um, we're not really, we weren't really used to when there was only, you know, two or three television news networks now with, um, all the different, uh, pseudo news networks around the country. Um, it's, it's potentially a lot more damaging than, um, I think people realize. So if you had to come up with a headline for one of your more interesting findings from a study, what would that be? Um, I would say uh, an, an interesting headline I would say is that fake news is very real and it's potentially damaging. <laughs> um, and in terms of sports news, I would say that 
Um, one really interesting finding that I had in uh, a paper that I wrote with Dr. Andy Billings um, and Dr. Travis Bell, at, um, who's an assistant professor at USF, was that um, in, in the sports world, female announcers don't actually um, call games any differently than male announcers. And I think there's, there's sort of this, this stigma with female athletes calling male sports, that they don't necessarily know the sport in the same way that a male would. And, um, I thought that was just a really interesting finding when we had, um, we basically coded, um, an NFL game, saw how two male announcers called the game and two female announcers called the game. And I thought it was really interesting to see that there really wasn't any uh, significant difference in terms of um, the way they were calling the game. So what you're saying is if you take a female announcer and put her in a male sport like the NFL or NBA, that even though the assumption might be that because it's a female, she would know the sport so she can't call it the same way a, a man would, in effect, your research said not the case. They call it exactly the same way. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, so we actually, the, the paper is actually under review at the um, Journal of Gender Studies, but it actually won first place um, at BEA in the mm -hmm. um, Gender and Sexuality Division. Mm -hmm. um, won a top paper award, and we're in the process of getting it published now. But one thing we actually did was um, back in 2018, um, uh, Hannah Storm and Andrea Kramer, both uh, veteran female uh, sports announcers, they they called a game as sort of this. They make history as the first female announcing team of an NFL game. They called a Thursday night football game on Amazon Prime. Uh -huh. And what we essentially did was we coded um, basically – the game was actually being simulcast with a Fox broadcast with veteran announcers, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. And what we actually did was we coded um, sort of their descriptors and, and exactly how they called the game. We didn't really find any significant differences. The, the only one difference that we found in terms of how they called the game was that the male, the male announcers significantly would uh, in a significantly higher um, amount of time would actually um, attribute a success in a play to athletic ability while the female announcers were a little bit more nuanced and, and would sort of attribute it to other factors. But for the most part, there was no significant differences. Hmm. That's interesting. And congratulations yes. on that topic. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> That's great. So can you, so, I'm sorry, Alicia, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, um, you mentioned that, that fake news, um, even in the sports world, it is real and, and can be damaging. Can you expand a little bit on that? Like, who is it damaging for in what ways? Yeah, so um, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that when it comes to the um, the sports world, it, it has um, intertwined with the political realm really significantly. You see a lot of athletes um, taking political stances on things. You see a lot of them joining, like, the Black Lives Matter um, protests, things like that. Um, and one thing I've seen is that there are like conspiracy theorists and, and things like that, that will attack, that will attack professional athletes for their opinions, for their activism. And that's one of the reasons I think this is, this is potentially very damaging to, to athletes in the sports media realm, to coaches that take a political stance. I mean, I think it can affect anyone and it's, we're seeing it in the sports realm as well. 
So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started doing the research you're doing now and how it's kind of evolved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the main reasons I sort of studied news credibility, um, one of the reasons I first, I first started getting into this, this research area was basically, um, from my own personal background, both my parents are actually from Iran and, um, in Iran, they don't have a free press. There's essentially, it's a, it's a mouthpiece for the government. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I, I sort of started looking into this with knowing full well that a free press is essential in any democracy. Um, and that was, and then I, and also with the, um, with the sports media, I sort of, um, continued it and I'm looking at sort of factors that can, that can impact sports credibility. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's sort of just, it just sort of grew from there. I've been working with Andy Billings on a number of studies where we're looking at factors that can potentially um, impact credibility in sports articles. Like for example, one of our most recent studies that we just, that we just did through Qualtrics was um, we looked at specific language and how that can impact the credibility of an article. And if we're looking at it right now, basically what we did was we manipulated an article so that, um, the, the source was different. So we looked at like Bleacher Report versus um, versus Fox News versus MSNBC versus the Associated Press. And then we looked at how they used the specific COVID-19 um, terminology. So we manipulated the article yeah. COVID-19 to China coronavirus to Wuhan flu um, <laughs> to see how that potentially like, mm -hmm. um, impact the credibility of the article. We also sort of looked at xenophobia and how this could potentially increase a person's xenophobia. So we're, we haven't really done the results on that yet, but we're sort of going along with that. We went through IRB and we're sort of collecting data right now. That's going to be a really interesting study. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be really interesting when we find out sort of what happened with that. So, I mean, one of the one of the things that you've alluded to is is different uh, mm -hmm. methods for data collection. Um, do you have a a favorite way to collect? Data? Um, I mean, I've recently recently published uh, qualitative research, but I wouldn't say it was it was my favorite. I would say my <laughs> my. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've I've done pretty much every type of. Um, method that you could possibly do. But I, I would say I like designing experiments um, and coming up with hypotheses that I can potentially test and look at the data and sort of test the data. When it comes to qualitative research, you're sort of thinking in more kind of general terms and trying to like figure things out. But I think I, I like actually testing a specific hypothesis and designing experiments where, where you can test those specific things. So you've mentioned working with Andy Billings. Do you typically work uh, or collaborate with others in most of, the, of your studies? Is it something where you can do it um, solo? Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, Dr. Andy Billings and I have had, uh, we've collaborated on a number of studies uh, since I got here. I've been, I've been here for one year, but I think we've already, we've already co-authored three journal articles. And then I think we have three more on the way. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so we, we've collaborated a lot. Um, and we've also collaborated a lot with the doctoral students in, in the program. Um, I've written two papers with, um, with, uh, two of our sports media doctoral students, um, Patrick Gentile and, uh, Nick Bazzelli. Mm -hmm. I've also with my RA, we, him and I have written two other articles that we were, we're about to present at, um, AJMC that's, um, JP Kelsey. So I've collaborated with a number of the, um, of the doctoral students in the program and a, a number of times with, um, Andy Billings as well. So you've had a pretty busy year, it sounds. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot. I've, I've done a lot, um, in this year. Um, I think, I think with the pandemic happening, it sort of, it actually helped me sort of focus everything and really kind of, because I couldn't really travel anywhere or go anywhere. It sort of helped me focus my research and actually helped me get more productive with um, what I was trying to do. So continuing on that, um, have there been any challenges um, throughout this pandemic season? Uh, wait, can you actually say that one more time? It's sort of cut out. I'm sorry. Sure. Have there been any challenges that you faced um, while working from home or through? This yeah, I think season? there have definitely been challenges. Um, it's I I like to schedule meetings with my co co-authors and the people I'm trying to do research with, and actually meet with them face to face and kind of discuss um, different ways that we can different avenues that we can take this research, maybe where we want to, like what journals we're targeting, sort of what, what we actually want to test. Um, and we really haven't, I honestly haven't really had any like actual meetings with anyone since, since February, I think. Um, so I mean, I've not seen a human in five months. Yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, the grocery store is usually where I see people. Um, <laughs> but, but overall, yeah, I mean, it's, that's one of the challenges is you like most of our conversations are in email. Um, occasionally we'll schedule zoom meetings to kind of hash things out, but for the most part, it's, you know, it's, it's a little, it's definitely more difficult to communicate with people and sort of organize, um, organize what everyone's going to be doing over the course of a month or two months when you can't physically meet with that person. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest challenge, but I think because I have so much more free time, it's actually helped me to, uh, it's sort of helped me to kind of focus my attention on research. And I think, I think overall it's helped. So following up on that, just a little bit, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation that we're kind of in this space where you see athletes getting involved in Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So in this place that we're in with the global pandemic and sports were kind of shut down, what have you witnessed? Um, and this can be completely anecdotally, you know, being a sports fan, what role do you think athletes and athletics and sports will play 
in, you know, these broader kind of societal and cultural issues? I think, well, I, I think it's bringing um, a lot of attention to um, social change and like racial inequities that we really weren't talking about um, before the pandemic. These were things that were, um, even when Colin Kaepernick decided to um, um, to kneel during the national anthem, he, he received a lot of pushback from a lot of different people. Um, but now it's, it's becoming a lot more acceptable. You're in the NBA, they're actually, they're allowing, um, the athletes to put, um, like social justice messages on the, on the back of their jerseys. So mm-hmm. people, can, people can have black lives matter on the back of their Jersey. They can, um, say things like, um, say her name and things like that. So, um, overall, I think it's had a really sort of positive impact on society. The Washington Redskins have actually changed their name. They're now the Washington football team. Um, so I think you're, you're seeing a lot of positive change in, in the sports world. And I think because we haven't actually had sports to focus on, we're talking about a lot of other things and we actually see the impact of sports on a national and international level. And, um, and I think it's overall, it's, I think it's been good for sports. I think it's, it's, I, I, I don't think it's good for sports that we're not really going to be able to have fans at games. Um, and I'm not sure what's going to happen with the, the football season this year. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to have fans in games, but I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that we'll have something and overall people will be able to, you know, cheer on their favorite teams. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned yeah. um, athletes being able to wear something on their jersey or uniform. I think it was the um, National Women's Soccer League, and that may not be the correct term. They're playing a, a tournament in maybe Salt Lake City, and many of the players had a Black Lives Matter kind of band on their arms. Now, I'm not sure anybody was watching because it was being streamed through the NBC app, Um, so maybe the viewership was pretty low, Um, but I thought it was just interesting that they were all allowed to do that, and then certainly with um, LGBTQ issues and Pride Month and all that, you you know, the female athletes, at least in soccer, were able to, to be pretty, um, I guess vocal is the wrong word, but they were able to kind of express their opinions on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think th- this is probably something we wouldn't have seen had um, had these protests not happened. And so I think that's, um, we are seeing a a positive change and people are allowed to be more, um, more vocal athletes are allowed to be more vocal in terms of social injustice, which, you know, I think is, is good for everyone. Does that give you another kind of avenue maybe to pursue for your, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I'm sort of still, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out and maybe I will figure out a way to, to do it, but I'm still trying to figure out how to sort of integrate this into sports media research. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it will, uh, we've definitely, um, Andy Billings and I have definitely come up with several different studies. Um, we're looking at one of the other things we're looking at is sort of how the framing of articles has changed over time. So we actually looked at, um, basically, 
we, we coded about 800 different articles from, um, from like spring 2019 to spring 2020 to kind of see just how much sports has changed. Um, just how much the coverage has changed the way they're framing articles. Are, are they looking at, are they looking at from a health perspective? Or are they looking at it from an economic perspective? So we're still working on that as well. But um, I think definitely with these, like with the protests, with social injustice, I think this is definitely another avenue for us to look at. Okay, so so you said you're coding. How many articles? <laughs> right, I was um, trying to process that too. Well, uh, so essentially, this is how we broke it down. We we coded 200 articles from um, spring of 2019. We coded 200 articles from um, March of 2020. 200 from April of 2020, and 200 from May of 2020. Um, so specifically sports articles, specifically from major new newspapers and major news like cable networks. Um, so we're still in the process of doing that. We actually got two of our doctoral students to help us with the coding. Um, so we're, we're still like looking at the data on that, but, um, I think it'll be interesting to see just how the framing has changed over time. So I think, I mean, one thing that I think is, is important um, and uh, to talk about is I think there's this notion that, oh, I'm just going to go out and do a study and it's done tomorrow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how, how long, if you could ballpark it, um, is, is this coding um, just for this one study going to take? Um, I mean, we're wrapping it up now, but I think um, between the two coders that we have, because we have to do intercoder reliability and we have to do all this sort of data analysis kind of when we're at the 15%, 20% mark, um, I think the whole process probably just the coding itself between our two coders took close to a month. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it took about a month to do all of that, but yeah, we, we, cause we were looking at a lot of different things. I mean, we were looking at specifically was the CDC mentioned or quoted in the article was the, um, was the world health organization mentioned or quoted in the article was Donald Trump mentioned or quoted in the article. So we're looking at a lot of different things. And then we're also looking at framing on top of that. Like, what was the, like, what are they looking at different types of frames? Is it sort of a thematic versus episodic frames what's the tone of the article so we're looking at a lot of different things and that's one of the reason that's one of the reasons 800 articles took a solid month to code <laughs> sure well so one of the things i'm thinking about when i'm a sports viewer and a sports fan i may be sure. watching a game on tv but then i also have twitter up um and i'm following mm -hmm. tweets and all this sort of stuff kind of recaps how does social media play a role in, you know, the way that we function as sports fans, whether we're sitting in a stadium or we're viewing it in our living rooms? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, that's one of the, the big things that has changed about just television viewing in general. Um, like now we have multiple screens that we look at. And a lot of times when you're watching TV, you're also making food and the right. tech on your phone and listening to music and doing a lot of different things. So it's, you're, you don't really, it doesn't, television doesn't carry the same attention that it used to 25 years ago when we didn't have phones. 
Um, right. And we, we didn't have so many different screens that to look at with our tablets and our laptops and things like that. Um, and I think to a certain extent, sports, the, the good thing about social media is when it comes to sports is it allows us to be fully engaged with sports throughout the entire, throughout the entire game. Cause if you, you can always be looking up stats and you can always be um, tweeting about specific plays that you thought were really interesting or really cool. Um, and so I think to me personally, I think it's actually enhanced the game experience. The fact that we can actually go on social media and tweet about games in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, they consider it a distraction. They really want to be focused on the specific game. But I think if, if you're that type of person, you can just sort of turn off your phone and not really pay attention to what's being said on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and TikTok and things like that. Well, I think one of the things that's been um, just for me personally as a sports fan and a viewer, if I'm watching a game by myself and I'm kind of outraged by a call or something like that, then I can just go to Twitter and there are, you know, all these other people that are equally (laughs) outraged. Yeah. Um, And I think from that sense, as you mentioned, it kind of enhances the experience because I'm not just sitting there by myself on grumpy about a call. Um, you know, we can all sort of, I guess, via social media, be grumpy together. Yeah, it becomes more of a shared experience with mm-hmm. other people because we can, unless you're literally sitting the game, sitting and watching the game with someone else, you're sort of, it, it's just sort of you experiencing the game by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to Twitter, you can actually experience it with millions of other people who are kind of having the exact same thoughts as, as you are and potentially having different thoughts that you, than what you had watching the game. So I think overall, it's actually, I, I think it's, it's beneficial for sports to have that sort of social media interactivity. Certainly. So one final question for you, um, sure. as academics, we have the good fortune of being able to travel to different countries or different cities around the United States to go to conferences or present our research. What's one of the favorite places you've either visited for a conference or a place that you're kind of excited about visiting in the future? Absolutely. So yeah, I've done, um, I'm, although it's my first year at, uh, although I just finished up my first year at the university of Alabama, I was actually an assistant professor for five years at old dominion university in in Virginia. So Mm -hmm. I've gone to a lot of conferences over the years. Um, I was really excited about ICA being in Australia this year. Um, you're not the yeah. So I was really, really excited about that, but, um, I was, that was one of the places I was the most excited about going. Um, so maybe next, I'm not sure about next year, but whenever they, whenever ICA ends up back in Australia, I'll definitely try and go to that in terms of, um, other conferences. I really, really like going to, um, I love AJMC pretty much. I try to go there every year. I just, I think the academic community is very welcoming there and everyone, is really interested in, um, in sort of collaboration and, and learning about other people's research. I really like when AJ, where, when AJ has been at, um, Chicago, Chicago is one of my favorite cities. Um, in DC is one of my favorite cities and they, they sort of, those two cities are in the AJMC cycle. Um, so I think those are really cool cities to visit. Um, I know AJ was supposed to be at San Francisco this year. I'm, I, 
California Bay Area native. So that would have been like a homecoming for me. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, it um, it got canceled because of the pandemic. Well, it's gone virtual, so we'll still get to present our research. But um, but San Francisco is a great city for people who have never been. I would definitely recommend it. I grew up there, so it's like home for me. Mm-hmm. But um, that's another great city worth going to. Certainly. Sean, it has been so great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time and just telling us a little bit more about the research and all that you do for the College of Communication and Information Sciences. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Sean. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you all so much for being supporters of our No Stupid Questions podcast. We really appreciate you coming back week after week to listen to our conversations with different communication researchers. Next week, we're going to shift gears again and talk about something that many of us have been using so much over the last few months, social media. We're going to talk about how social media can connect us to some degree, but how things like hashtags can affect us and affect the content that we're posting. We hope you'll tune in. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week.